right, well, let's pray because we need to dive right in. We got lots to go over together. We're going to do some speed zooming, surveying over the book of Job, and I'm going to need lots of help, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, just for your goodness to us, your faithfulness, that you are in control even when it seems as though chaos reigns around us. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would help us to see your faithfulness to us time and time again. Lord, I pray that you would help these dear ladies to be able to absorb the information and the the glory of your word that we are about to peer in. Might you give them sharp thoughts, sharp minds this morning. Might we be able to set aside the clutter of our days to be able to just stop and be in awe of who you are as our mighty creator, the sovereign over all, our king, that we might bow our knee and worship you in response of your beautiful character. Lord, it's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. All right, so before we crack open our Bibles to the book of Job, I wanted to just kind of take us to um, Pilgrim's Progress. So John Bunyan, years and years ago, uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and it's been such a benefit to the church ever since. Uh, Ron and I actually are semi-collectors of children's editions. So I will be reading to us out of It's Called Dangerous Journey. Um, But we're going to come in in the middle of the story. So Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, are walking along the way. And the way is getting super rocky and hard. And it's just getting the sores on the bottom of their feet because God's path, God's way to the celestial city is getting very difficult. So Christian looks over and he says, he sees Bypass Meadow. Well, Bypass Meadow has a lovely path that's smooth and easy and looks really, really welcoming. But you have to jump the sty and get off God's path onto Bypass Meadow. And Christian says to Hopeful, well, look, it, it's running the same direction. We'll be fine. And those of you that are familiar with the story, you know they are not fine. But by the time they figure out they're not fine and try to find their way back, it's too late. It's dark. They fall asleep. And when they wake up, The giant despair is there and snatches them up and drags them to his doubting castle and throws them into the dungeon. Now, the first day, he beats them mercilessly, throws them back in the dungeon. And where we pick up in our story right now, he's talking to his wife, Diffidence. Now, diffidence is a word we don't use often. Diffidence means mistrust, just very mistrustful of everything around you, just not really trusting, being suspicious, very suspiciously minded of all that's around you. So that'll be important a little bit later. But Giant Despair and his wife, Diffidence, mistrust, are talking. The next night, the giant was again talking to his wife in bed. What? 
are they still alive, she asked. They've nothing left to live for. So when you get up in the morning, you must tell them to make an end of themselves. Up he got and went to them in a surly manner as before. And perceiving them to be very sore from the bruises he had given them on the previous day, he counseled them as his wife advised. Your only way out of this place, he said, is by death. So why are you waiting? Make an end of yourselves. Why should you choose life seeing it is attended by so much bitterness? He had thoughtfully provided them with a noose, a knife, and a bottle of poison so they could have a choice. When they respectfully declined, he looked upon them in a very ugly manner. He would have killed them there and then himself, but that he fell into one of his fits, for the giant had a secret weakness. On dark and cloudy days, he was strong as an ox, but in sunshiny weather, he fell into fits. They caused him to lose the use of his hand, and so for a time he had to withdraw. Then Christian and Hopeful discussed among themselves what they should do. Perhaps the giant is right, said Christian. Perhaps death would be better than the miserable life we lead. Not everything is in the hands of the giant despair, said Hopeful. Who knows, but he may have another of his fits and forget to lock us in. Let us not be our own murderers. In this way, Hopeful moderated the mind of his brother. So they continued together another day in the dark. Then night being come and the giant and his wife being in bed, she asked him again about the prisoners, to which he replied, mm, they are sturdy rogues. They choose to bear all hardships rather than make away with themselves. Then here's what you must do, she said. Tomorrow morning, take them to the castle yard and show them the bones and skulls of those whom you have already dispatched. Up got the giant again and took his prisoners into the castle yard as his wife had bidden him. These, he said, pointing to the skeletons, were pilgrims just like you who trespassed into my grounds. When I thought fit, I tore them in pieces as within 10 days I will do to you. Back in their dungeon, Christian nearly swooned away. For now, through lack of food and by reason of his bruises, he could hardly breathe. But Hopeful again encouraged him. My brother, he said, Apollyon could not crush you, nor the valley of the shadow of death. And remember how you played the man in Vanity Fair. Don't forget, I'm in the dungeon with you, a far weaker man by nature than you are. This giant has wounded me as well as you and cut off the bread and water from my mouth. And like you, I'm deprived of light. So let us exercise a little more patience and bear up as best we can and keep on praying. Then, as often happens in dreams, when things are desperate, Christian suddenly remembered. I have in my pocket, he said, an old key called promise. It might just fit the lock. Try it, said Hopeful. 
hopefully. Christian was trying the dungeon door with his key. The lock went hard. Weak as he was, he had to work at it. But at last, the key began to turn. There was a creaking and a groaning, and the door swung open, and in came the light of dawn. Now, as we progress forward, as we think through these different things, our attitudes, our thoughts towards our God, we continue about our talks about God most high. One attitude we must fight as we view God and who he is, is a mistrust of his plan and a stripping away of that idol, our needs being the most important. Yvonne did a great job last week pointing at that, that often times in our modern society, we are numero uno. We are our own idol. We have an idol with a capital I that needs to be dealt with. And we view God suspiciously. What is his plan? Why is what we're going through happening? We seem to struggle with that correct view of God and a trust of his character. And Martha Peace was so kind to over and over and over again give us scripture upon scripture, refocusing our mind back on his character. So as we learn to bow the knee as Nebuchadnezzar did in our first lesson, and as we learn that our hearts, are they not just little idle factories wanting our own comforts, our own ease? We don't like the hard path of God's way. We want that ease path, the bypass meadow, but often just ends up in danger. As we think through these things, let's peer into life of one man in scripture that was severely tried. So we are going to do a survey of the book of Job. And I'm going to try to talk very quickly so we can get through everything. But we're going to be pacing ourselves pretty quickly. I did on your outlines try to write out for you um, the different scriptures that we'll be going to. That way, if you're like, wait, where did she say in Job? Just look at your outline point and it should help, help you keep track with where we're at. I would invite you to turn with me as we're doing the, the, the different areas. So that way your eyes are seeing and your ears are hearing the truth of scripture. Even though we'll be flipping a lot. So have those fingers ready, my loves. So first we'll be looking at Job's circumstances. Then we're going to see the most high God's control. And finally, we're going to see Job's contrition. So let's dive right in. And number one on your outline, see Job's circumstances. Job's circumstances. So turn with me in your scriptures. As uh, Pastor Charles said, your copy of God's word. I loved it. Um, to Job 1.1. Where we are going to be introduced. What is Job's life like? What is he like himself? Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Now, just so you don't get confused, here in um, Job, curse does not mean to use obscene language, but it means more an idea of regarding something as worthless, not valuable. So Job's concern were maybe my sons are not considering our great God as something worthless, as something not valuable. And he was offering offerings on his behalf. So here we see Job's life is a sweet example of somebody who loves the Lord, who is striving to please the Lord, who's striving to lead his family in a way that is honoring to his God. So this is very important to keep in mind. Sometimes we can get a little bit critical of Job later on. He reveals his heart to us and we kind of go, Job, we have a negative vibe of him, but no. He is a blameless, upright man. He has done nothing severely wrong. And this is going to be important for us to keep in mind as we move forward with these scriptures. So then scripture shows us, A, his multiple misfortunes. His multiple misfortunes. So we're going to see his circumstances changed. If you'll look down with me at verse 13. Now, on the day when his sons and his daughters were drinking and eating wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, A great wind came across from the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So here we have misfortune upon misfortune upon misfortune. Stephen Davies says, if you read those verses through, And how it keeps on saying, while he was yet speaking, another came. While he was yet speaking, another came. It took about 39 seconds for Job's life to completely crumble around him. 
all had been taken away in a matter of seconds. And it's easy for us to kind of get disconnected with this of, yeah, we know. Yeah, we've heard. But imagine that coming to you. Obviously, I don't think any of you have camels or sheep. Well, you might have sheep. Probably not camels, though. But back then, that's everything. This is an agricultural society. Your wealth is numerated in your belongings, your possessions, your cattle, your different animals, your servants. And yet, all of that wiped away in a moment. And then, even more precious, your children taken away in seconds. But even another layer on top of it, this time as I was reading and thinking through Job, notice um, in verse, with the Sabians and the Chaldeans, it, it makes reasonable sense. These are evil people. They, have, they don't worship the one true God. Of course, they came to do evil. But yet you have fire from heaven wiping out the sheep and the servants. There is no explanation from that. It seems as though it's an act of God. You have a great wind knocking down the four corners of the house. This also seems to be an act of God coming from nowhere. So those added layers. So as he's thinking through all his sorrows, again, he doesn't know. We're going to go straight through his circumstances. He doesn't know what's happening behind the scenes. We'll go back to that in a minute. But I want you to get a feel for what it's like for Job. We know background. He does not. He has no idea why these things are happening. He has no idea why his entire life is ripped to shreds in 39 seconds. But even more than that, Scripture tells us in chapter 2, verse 7. Go ahead and flip over to that. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot herd and to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Now to add to the sorrow of his loss, God allows Satan to give him the trial of losing his health in the most painful ways possible. And as he is sitting there in this agony from his multiple misfortunes, we hear from B, his miserable wife. So here's Job. Everything's gone. Now his health has been stripped away. And now his miserable wife speaks up. Now, in her defense, she has suffered the same losses. She is going through the same sorrows. It's easy to call her miserable. It's much harder to be her in her circumstance. But look down at at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Cursed God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, ladies, again, that that word curse right there, 
means to bid farewell to. So she's really meaning just dismiss God from your heart. Stop regarding him as highest. Quit holding on to your integrity. Just be done with it. Give up. Sometimes you do wonder, is she saying this out of a heart of just sorrow, watching them walk through all these sorrowful things and now watching him in pain, in agony, nigh unto death, but not quite at death's door yet. So ladies, even with this, Job's had everything taken away. He's had his health taken away. His own wife isn't encouraging him. Just give it up. Be done with it. So that way you can just die. C.H. Spurgeon tells us, He that offereth praise glorifieth me, says God. And so Satan lays the axe at the root of our praise that God may cease to be glorified. So even in his wife's word, Job has that temptation to stop glorifying God by stop giving him praise. And and Satan's going to go after that. So ladies, by our actions to life sufferings, do we dismiss God from our heart? Or do we bend the knee, trusting that God is good and trusting that he has a plan, even if we can't figure out what that plan might be? Do we bow the knee and trust him? Or do we look around at our circumstances and say, this is so bad. I want to give up. I don't want to do this anymore. And ladies too, I'd I'd love to just do a little side note. Here we have his wife. Again, I am am not her judge. We don't see her again. I, I don't know if God changed her heart along the way. I pray and hope. He did, but that's her testimony in scripture. How are we when even our sweet husbands are suffering? Do we encourage Christ-like responses from them? Do we remind them of God's faithfulness in specific ways throughout y'all's life together? Or do you complain and what God has brought into your lives? Do you tempt your husband to view God and his plan in disdain or disapproval? Are we our husband's encouragers to holiness or their greatest hindrances? How do we speak about God to even our husbands in the comfort of our own homes when no one else is around and nobody else is there to hear? We need to consider those things. And then, too, our own hearts. How are we responding to our own losses, our own difficulties as we look at them? Are we wanting to give up? Are we wanting to recall to mind the faithfulness of God? Not only did he have multiple misfortunes and his miserable wife, we see added, see, his misdiagnosing friends. His misdiagnosing Friends. Number one, now they did start well with silent sympathy. So I want to give them that. They started off really well. They had silent sympathy. Look back down to chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him, 
They came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. Each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. So here, ladies, they started off well. Probably if they could have just stayed in this state, it would have been better. But then we wouldn't have learned our lessons from them. So the silence did not last long after the seven days were over. Joe breaks out in laments. We'll look at his particular lament in a minute in chapter 3. In chapters 4 through 31, we have three cycles of debates between Job and his three friends. Now, I want to encourage you, if you go back, obviously we are not going to read them all together. We do not have time, unfortunately. But if you go back to, and reread these chapters, be very careful when you're pulling out verses from those chapters There are times when Job or his friends may get their viewpoint wrong concerning about what God is doing. So don't don't build any life theologies out of those chapters, okay? Make sure you know the context in which you're reading those chapters. They're very helpful as we think through things, but make sure you're not just pulling a verse. Or if you're reading something and somebody else has pulled a verse without giving you context... Slow it way down and be like, what are you telling me right now? So context is is key. Always, always, always. That needs to be like on a giant doorpost somewhere in your house. Context is key. Okay. Okay. Job progressively louder and louder proclaims that his sin is not equal to the suffering he's experiencing throughout these three debates. And his friends get progressively harsher with each time that they rebuke Job. We obviously, again, don't have time to reach each, each of these debates, but it's helpful to get an overall view of what his friends were saying. So let's start with Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Terminite responded with the world's wisdom to suffering. To him, it made sense that suffering was the consequence of sin and that if a person suffered, he was being punished by God. You might say, Rach, how how can you tell? Well, turn with me to Job 4. We're going to start in verse 7. This is Eliphaz talking. He says, remember now, whoever perished, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, I'm, I'm at verse 9, by the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. So there's Elphaz. Basically, you had to have sinned because it just makes sense that God punishes sin. Let's go on to Bildad, number three on your outlines. Bildad the Shuhite. 
He viewed suffering from a human perspective and assumed that suffering is always the result of doing something wrong. Flip over to chapter 8. We're going to read verses 5 and 6. This is Bildad speaking. If you would see God and implore the compassion of the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. So do you hear what he's saying? Well, I mean, surely if you were just pure and innocent, then God would fix this and he would restore you. So again, do you see that wrong? He's he's stating some right theology, so was Elphaz, but applying it totally incorrectly and making assumptions. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's go on to Zophar. So number four on your outline, Zophar. He declared, this is a, he's, he, he needs some help in his putting on his heart of compassion for sure. So he declared that Job deserved even worse than what he got. Now, in the strictest sense of the term, is he right? Theologically speaking, do we always deserve worse than what we're getting? Yes. But is this a gracious word fit for the moment? Hmm. And is he viewing God correctly when he's saying this? Look with me to Job 11, 6, and I'm just going to read the last part of the verse, and then I'm going to skip, skip down to 13 to 15. So this is Zophar speaking. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. So immediately going to that you have iniquity and, and God is not crushing you for part of it. And then skip down to verse 13. If you would just direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. And then go down to verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and there will be no escape for them and their hope is to breathe their last. So basically he's saying for the wicked, their only hope is to just go ahead and breathe their last. And he's saying all this to Job just convinced and assuming in his mind God must be pouring out his wrath on you right now for some sort of concealed iniquity that you're holding in your hand and you need to put it away from you. So these three friends were convinced that Job had sin concealed somewhere since he was obviously being judged by God. Ladies, we can learn a lot from their mistakes. We need to learn, don't ever ever assume you know the mind of God for your own circumstances, for circumstances of others. There is a time and a place for loving confrontation of sin, for sure. But do not assume a person's going through a certain situation because of something else. Sometimes sitting in silence with someone suffering is better than opening your mouth with either wrong theology or even right theology applied at the wrong time or the wrong moment. Be so very careful and so very thoughtful. Yes, God is sovereign. We will be looking at that over and over and over again. But sometimes 
the best thing you can do is sit quietly in comfort or to go directly to prayer. Sometimes just being there for that person is the best thing you can do. Yes, speak truth into their lives. A lot of times people who are suffering, they need that truth. Make sure it is loving. Make sure it is comforting. Point them to Christ. Point them to their heavenly father who loves and cares for them and is our comfort. But be so very careful in the way that you do it. So as Job is suffering with his multiple misfortunes and miserable wife and is defending himself from his mixed diagnosing friends, Job reveals D, his misguided thoughts. His misguided thoughts. What are some of these thoughts possibly? Well, number one, he cursed the day he was born. He cursed the day he was born. Look at Job chapter 3, verse 11. Job chapter 3, verse 11. Job is just crying out in his suffering. Why did I not die at birth and come forth from the womb and expire? Look down to verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave. Ladies, the suffering of Job was great, and many sorrows were thrown on him. But at any time, are we okay okay to declare that we desire death rather than the life that God has called us to live? Who is the one who gives life and takes it away. Deuteronomy 32, 39, you can just listen to it with me. says, see now, this is the Lord himself speaking. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So ladies, even at the point of despair, if you have somebody like giant despair, if you have despair, we are to hope in God until he calls us to be home with him. He gives us that key of promise. We are to seek to serve him in whatever capacity he allows us to. The earth would not be better without us because God decreed that we would be born in the time frame and in the situation that we were for his purposes. We are called to shine the light of his gospel into the dark corners of the world. We are to bear our trials, both internal ones and external ones, in order to be more Christ-like and to bring him greater glory. He chips away at our rough edges and refines us through fire. That is why James can tell us to count it all joy when we are faced with trials. So ladies, do we think that God is wrong when he is more concerned about his glory more than our happiness? Think about that for a minute. Now, not only did 
Job cursed the day he was born. But number two, he wanted to plead his case before God. Now, be mindful as we read these verses, ladies. This is right in the middle of the the debates with his misdiagnosing friends who are constantly at him of saying, well, you had to have done something wrong. You've got to have some sort of great wickedness concealed. And Job is responding to them, but maybe with a misguided attitude towards God. Let's read it in Job 13. I'm going to read verse 3, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 15. This is Job speaking. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Down to verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And ladies, is this not the cry of our hearts often? That my circumstances, they're just, they're not fair. If I, could, if I could just sit down and talk through with God, if he would just tell me and help me to understand why it's this way, what, what purpose does this have? If I could just talk to him just once, face to face, then it would be okay. Then everything would be well. If we could just let God know how these trials are affecting us, then, you know, at least we would feel better about it. We subtly doubt God's plan. We mistrust his purpose because we just cannot see how in the world this would be for good. We know Romans 8.28 is there, but we just have a really hard time connecting it with what's going on the right now. How can all things work together for good? I don't understand God. So our heart's cry is, oh, if I could just plead my case with the Lord. And that's Job's heart cry here. Again, I do not say that without a lot of compassion for Job. He is going through intense suffering. But as we walk through intense suffering, God has put this into his scriptures so that we can learn from Job. So we've con. Consider Job's circumstances, but now we're going to look through the book of Job and consider number two, the most high God's control. The most high God's control. So I just loved the quote that Martha Peace put in our book. I just think it sums it up really well. C.H. Spurgeon said, men will allow God to be everywhere except his throne. They will allow him in his workshop to fashion worlds and stars, to dispense his bounties, to sustain the earth and bear up pillars of light. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth, for God on his throne is not the God they love. Just like Yvonne taught us, We create these gods of our own mind. I want God to be like this. And we have that little idol-creating factory in our own hearts. This is what I want. So this is what I want my God to look like. Or to even think back to Nebuchadnezzar. Why did he serve Marduk? For what he could get out of Marduk. 
are we having that same attitude? So A, God reveals here, he is at work. He is at work. Oh, the graciousness of our God to pull back the curtain of heaven and allow us lowly mortals to see his throne room and give us a small snapshot of his ruling from his throne. He did not do that for Job. He didn't pull back curtains and say, Job, let me just show you. Look, what, look what's going on. Let me, let me show you why you were walking through what you're walking through. And yet, ladies, do we praise the Lord that he did that for us and put it in his scripture? How amazing that is. How awe-inspiring that is. He actually showed us his really real throne room and what happened there and why these different things happened. That is absolutely amazing. So look down with me. We're going to flip back to chapter 1 again because we're starting over with our God's control. And then number one on your outlines, we're going to see God's sovereign control over all spiritual beings. God's sovereign control over all spiritual beings. Look at verse 6 there. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So, and if you look and contrast and compare, the beginning of chapter 2 is almost the same verses verbatim. So that word present there in verse 6 means to present oneself before. So this carries the notion as, as coming into a king's throne room as a servant ready to serve. So almost think about a throne room and courtiers and they're coming in, presenting themselves before the king in order for service. So here are the angels coming in. Something we need to keep in mind, ladies. It's not as though God is at the top rung of the ladder and then the next rung is the angels and then the next rung is us humans and then animals, the rest of creation, all in the rungs. No, God is not on a rung. God is not even on a letter at all. He's completely separate, holy, pure, transcendent, above all things. He's completely separate from his creation, including the angels. So this isn't a good and evil equal battle and the struggle is fierce. There is a battle but is not equal. God is on his throne, and one day in his plan and in his purpose, he will completely defeat evil. But here we have God and Satan speaking to each other in his throne room. But who is in control of this conversation? The Lord Most High is. I want you to notice later on, compare chapter 1 and chapter 2. Who initiates every conversation? Is Satan trouncing up to God and flinging accusations? No. The only time Satan is allowed to speak is in response to God already speaking to him. So I think those, those are little things we can pick up and say, okay, God truly is in control. 
So look at um, number two on your outlines, God's faithful control over Job's circumstances. God's faithful control over Job's circumstances. Job 1.8, so look down at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. C.H. Spurgeon said, The spirit of evil stood face to face with the infinite spirit of all good. When called into account for his doings, the evil one boasted that he had gone to and fro throughout the earth, insinuating that he met with no hindrance to his will and found no one opposing his freely moving and acting at his own pleasure. He had marched everywhere like a king in his own dominions, unhindered and unchallenged. Ah, but the great God reminded him there was at least one place among men where he had no foothold and where his power was unrecognized, namely in the heart of Job. And can that be said about us, ladies? That yes, Satan is alive away. Well, he is a roaring lion, but is our heart a place that he has no dominion? Would we consider it a privilege to have God point us out in the same way, even if it meant suffering in the same way like Job did? Could you imagine if that was you? God sitting on his throne and say, have you considered my servant? But if it meant the same type of suffering that Job went through? Do we love God for what he gives but not when he takes it away? What is our relationship with God based on? Well, I'm going to read to you what Satan accuses. Look back down to verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But but put forth your hand now and touch all he has. He will surely curse you to his face. So the accuser here, ladies, states that if all was taken away from Job, then he would forsake his relationship with God. If the benefits of a relationship with God were stripped away, then there would be nothing left. That Job would not want a relationship with God simply for God himself. If you skip over to Job 2, verse 3, after the Lord allows Satan to strip everything away and Job does not curse God, the Lord said to Satan again, verse 3 on chapter 2, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, hmm, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord God said to Satan, behold, he is in your power only spare his life. 
So here we see the background of even Job's health being taken away. Again, the accuser says that man is inherently selfish, and since Job's misfortunes didn't touch him personally, oh, that wasn't enough. Yeah, so he lost everything, but he's not going to curse you because he himself is okay. You know, that's why Job hasn't cursed you there. Even though God allows Satan to test Job again, I want you to notice God's faithful control over Job's circumstances and the fact that, A, Satan is not allowed full control. Satan is not allowed full control. If you read in Job chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power only. Do not put your force, your hand on him. So Satan departed from his presence. And then if you look back down to 2 verse 6, it says, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So over and over again, Satan does nothing without God allowing it. And Satan does not get to do what he wants. God has control of the situation. Satan can go no farther than what the Lord gives him permission to. This should be a great comfort to our hearts. Satan is not on this earth roaming around, running amok beyond the arm of God. And we should be very, very comforted in that thought. Not only that, B, God sustains Job's faith throughout his trial. God sustains Job's faith throughout his trial. Job states that even in the midst of suffering, and I'll just read it for you. In chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then if you turn to Job 12, verse 13, he goes on to say, with him, speaking of the Lord, with him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. And then if you look farther down in that same chapter, 12 verse 22, he says of the Lord, he reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. And then in chapter 19, you can just listen to this one. Chapter 19, a beautiful verse of, of Job's faith in the steadfastness of his God. Job 19.25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. So even as Job is walking through these hard things and, and struggling even with his own thoughts... He does not need his friends to remind him of God's sovereignty. He seems thoroughly convinced of that fact. But the only way that Job is able to utter such things is the faith that God has gifted him with. God not only sustained his faith, but he also see God provides one friend that speaks the truth correctly. He provides one friend that speaks that truth correctly. That's Elihu. So in, in very short brief, Elihu has a very long speech, but in short, Elihu condemns Job's friends 
and Job's claim of being without sin. He declares God's justice, condemns Job's attitude towards God, and exalts God's greatness. So just just a smattering of what he was doing. Go ahead and um, turn to Job 32.12. Job 32.12. So Elihu was the youngest. He allowed that three cycles of debates to go on. And at the beginning, he says, I hesitated because I was younger than you. So I was allowing you who are older out of respect to speak first. But he cannot contain his silence anymore. He says in verse 12, I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job. Not one of you answered his words. So basically, he's pointing out, you guys did not address, actually, Job's issue. You just kept talking and talking and talking, but you didn't actually help his problem. And then Elihu to Job, if you look at um, flip to chapter 33, verse 13, Elihu is talking to Job and he says, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Ooh, I think that would be a great verse for us, ladies. Have that one on the wall somewhere too. Why do I complain against God? that he does not give an account of all his doings. And then if you read on in in chapter chapter 34, verse 12, Elihu says, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So after Elihu's speech, God Most High decided it was time to address Job directly. But again, he does not pull back that curtain and show Job what's going on behind the scenes. What does he do? Instead, he be, he reveals his control through his creation. He reveals his control through his creation. Look down at chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. We can't read everything God says, but they're just beautiful chapters. But chapter 38 Starting at verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who said its measurements? Since you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here, ladies, he is displaying his glory in his creation. But also looking at Job and said, where were you? Where were you when these things happened? Since you have understanding. Not on, God not only shows that he's at work through in his control through his creation, but he also sees, shows his control in dealing with the heart of man. We're going to flip over to chapter 40. So he's, he's in control throughout his creation in the external, but also on the internal. 
Look at 40 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. We're going to skip down to verse 6. And said, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God and you can thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Now, ladies, I like to call Job 38 through 41 when I am struggling with myself, you know, the self, the fleshly side, the whiny side of me. I call Job 38 through 41 the shushing the self passage. When I need to shush myself, because self is being loud and self is whining and complaining and, and wanting its own way, then these are chapters to come to and read them over and over in its detail. We're only doing tiny clips right now, but transforming your mind by dwelling on the greatness of God is very, very important when you need to shush the self. So when we are overwhelmed, it's good to come to these chapters to remind ourselves that God is God and we are not. When we are trapped in doubting counsel and wallowing in despair, it is good for us to fix our perspective of who our God Most High is and how blessed we are that he is in control of every detail of his creation, including me including my own heart. We do not get to make decisions of what we would like to see happen in our lives. Romans 9, 20 and 21 says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump One vessel for honorable use and the other for common use. So ladies, these are verses good to bring ourselves to as we're struggling to struggle well, as we are walking through different trials of life, suffering of life, to fix our perspective of it is an honor to serve the king, even if that means deep suffering. So he is worthy. His glory is that valuable. So we have seen Job's circumstances. We've seen God's control. Number three now, we see Job's contrition. Job's contrition, another word we do not often use, but contrition has deep sorrow for sin wrapped up in it. The grief of heart for having offended an infinitely holy and benevolent God. Noah Webster also says, This is also the word used 
for the act of grinding or rubbing to powder. I think that is a very good way that we need to think about our own hearts. When that pride wells up, we need to grind it to powder. When that sin wells up, we need to grind it to powder. We need to have that deep sorrow for our sin, that grief of heart. So in Job's contrition, we see A, his humility. His humility. Look at chapter 40, verse 3, and then on to 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice and I will add nothing more. Ladies, this is our right response to a God that needs nothing. Complete humility and submission to what his plan is for us. He does not need us to carry out his plan, but he chooses to use us in his plans and for his glory. And being used of God is a privilege. So B, um, Job also saw God's complete control as good and right. God's complete control is good and right. Look, flip over to chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eye sees you. So here, Job owns God to just be omnipotent over nature as contrasted with his own feebleness, which obviously God proved in the chapters before. And then second, Job sees that God is supremely just in all his dealings, and he contrasts that to himself. He is low, his own vileness, his own feebleness. He's incompetent to deal with the wicked as a just judge. So Job has humility, he sees God's complete control is good and right, and C, he repents. He repents. Look down at 42 verse 6, just simply says, Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. So here he's he's repenting of his defense of himself and his desire to know the wise and the mind of God. The ESV puts that, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now remember, catechism is a beautiful thing. What is repentance? To be sorry for sin, to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. We need to teach that to our kids, but we need to teach that to our own hearts. Why am I sorry? Am I sorry because this is tough for me, my, my circumstances, the consequences of my sin are hard, or am I sorry because I love the Lord and this is breaking my relationship with him and I desire to see that restored and for my life to shine and to reflect his glory back to him, that those around me can see my good works but not see me, but glorify my heavenly father. So he 
in these different things, Lord. Though Job wanted reasons for his suffering, God decided it was best that God did not have those reasons. Do we trust in our own hearts that God will not always share those reasons? Sometimes we just need to trust, I know that my God is good. I know that my God is faithful. I know that my God is at work. I know that my God is in control. So therefore, I will put one more foot forward and then one more and then one more. I'm not going to lean to my own understandings that says this is crazy and I need to give up. I am going to trust in the Lord because he is good and he is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would weave into our hearts a deep trust for you, a deep trust for your word and your plans and your thoughts. Lord, might we strip away our pride of demanding to know the whys of the difficulties of life, that we would be women who bow the knee to you as God most high, that we would center our focus to your faithfulness, to your sovereign rule, that we would love your sovereign rule, that we would trust that one day you will glorify us, that you are even capable to conquer our own sinful hearts, that we would fight our sin with that at the forefront of our minds. Lord, that we would be pleasing in your sight. Thank you, God, for Job. Thank you for the way that you sustained him through these things and the way that you restored him. I pray that you would be with us, that we, to the end of our lives, would trust you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.